All right, well, let's keep going and open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to join us, uh, and you can use a blue pew Bible and open up to 1 Timothy 3. That's right at the top of page 992 in the pew Bible. Uh, the culture that we are constantly trying to cultivate at Grace is uh, Bibles open, either device or in front of us, to see that what we teach week in and week out is not just my uh, opinion, but um, every conviction comes straight out of his word. Um, and I also just want to take a minute to reflect on this past Friday night. Uh, you've heard it a couple times already in the service, but if you haven't connected the dots, we had a worship night uh, at Grace, led by the members of our music team. And it really was a powerful time of singing and the public reading of scripture. Um, we heard testimonies from a couple members of the worship team's lives, Kylie and then Ilya. And then Matt Smith came, and he shared, uh, in his words, the testimony of Jesus, and shared that with us. And um, you know, Matt said something there on Friday night that really stuck with me. He just reminded us all that we get to do this. Like, like we get to gather and worship God together, and how much of a gift that is. And um, I won't say that the team was surprised at the turnout, but we will say pleasantly encouraged that this room was full on Friday night. And there really was a palpable um, hunger, and I think it speaks to the hunger in this church to gather together, to sing together, to worship together. Um, I think it speaks to the giftedness of our team. And um, overall, as I've just been reflecting on it a little bit, um, I think this adds another glimpse, just even if it's just a glimpse into a real movement of God that we're sensing in this church and in this moment. And um, as I said earlier, finding ourselves just caught up in a story of what God is writing in this area, and he's choosing to use Grace Church in what seems to be a significant way, and we want to be um, humble about that, but also steward that well, and uh, just really appreciate those palpable moments of uh, the Spirit's presence and the heart of worship in our people. And, uh, and I would say, just practically, it's a good sign when I hear from people immediately after it ended when we're going to do it again. Like, I'm like, just give it a night, all right? Like, send the email tomorrow. Uh, but no, like, we, we will be thinking about that, of how, how much we want to build that now into the rhythm of our church calendar. But thank you to the team, uh, especially to those who organized it. And I, I would say this, just one last thing. Um, the, ma the majority of really the engine of that worship night and organizing it, planning it, executing it, were all from uh, men and women in grace who were under 30. And there's a real just, uh, God is moving in a sense in that generation and kind of carrying us along in a lot of ways in that way. And it's been really uh, encouraging to see. Well, all right, as we said, we now turn the page to chapter 3 in our series in 1 Timothy. And over the next two Sundays, we're going to talk about the qualifications for leadership in the local church. Now, if there was a church that was trying to use its sermon topics to grab people and grow a congregation as fast as it could, I can tell you it would not preach about the qualifications for leadership in the local church. Uh, that probably wouldn't make the top 10 of how do we want to do this and grow this really fast, but, uh, but it's vitally important, as we'll see. But I also realize there's some layers to how you might be approaching um, a sermon like this and a passage like this. Because when I say church leadership, or I say elders or deacons, which a couple of the titles we'll see over the next couple of weeks, I imagine that it solicits a spectrum of reactions in you based upon your experiences with the local church here and elsewhere. 
I realize that many would probably maybe say they're apathetic. Uh, and it's not that they don't care. They believe in churches and they believe in church leaders and they want healthy ones, but maybe not like totally interested in needing to hear about it. Um, perhaps the mindset is I'm coming into here on Sunday to be hearing something that's a little more relevant to my life and a sermon on church leadership doesn't quite scratch that itch. Um, there are others of you who might be really grieved and or frustrated when you hear even the phrase church leadership. Um, you've been hurt personally, uh, wounded personally by the actions either directly or indirectly from church leaders. Um, or you are frustrated, maybe even angry with the stream of headlines that talk about the abuse of many kinds at the hands of church leaders and local churches, not just in the past, but like this last week, like today. Um, and I realize others of you, if you were to be asked about it, you'd say you're grateful that, that in God's mercy towards you and his kindness towards you, uh, he has put good leaders in your path. And that you have been led by good leaders in the local church who love the Lord, who cared well for people, and have helped you grow and your family grow in significant ways. Um, and, and maybe to cap that off, maybe even more confusingly, you got a slice of all of those in your past. And, and there are some kind of multi-layered reactions when you think about um, leadership in the local church. Well, as we have seen in this letter that we began back in January, uh, Paul is writing to a man named Timothy. And Timothy was sent by Paul to the church in the city of Ephesus to address some issues there. And the foundational issues that we have saw up to this point in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, the foundational issues are with the leadership and within the leadership. And so Timothy has been told to exhort the leaders to lead well, but it seems that Ephesus is going to need some new leaders. And Paul has already called out by name two leaders in the end of chapter 1 who had been removed from the church at Ephesus. So the fact that a lot of the problems are within leadership, we know if at least some have been removed from leadership, it makes sense now that Paul is going to discuss the qualifications for those who should now be put into leadership. And as we head to chapter 3, we're going to see Two offices discussed in particular. First, the office of elder, or as you'll see in the text, overseer. And then the office of deacon. And I hope you will see and, uh, and realize and, and really resonate with the fact that this is not only relevant to our church, but it is relevant to your life. Because the church's reputation and mission is dependent in very much uh, in the health of its leaders. And so let's not lose sight of the fact that as we get into this passage, why Paul is being so specific about the kind of leaders the church needs. Because deep down, don't we want to see people awakened to faith? Like, don't we want to see and be part of a church that is doing something that's being used in a significant way to impact God's kingdom? Like, we want to see, uh, and, and we yearn to see, the miracle of God's grace transform lives and then see people grow in their faith and see families and children raised in the church grow in their faith and be strengthened for whatever the Lord has for them in their lives. And it's very difficult to do that. It's very difficult to live a healthy Christian life without a healthy church or a community of faith that you are a part of. And likewise, it's not possible to have a healthy church with unhealthy leaders. So this is vital for all of us. And with that lead in, let's go to the text. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to cover the first seven verses. I'm going to read them all up front this morning. The saying is trustworthy. 
If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." All right, well, on the, at the end of last week's sermon, which was on chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, um, I said that if Grace Church is to faithfully carry out the mission in the way God has designed us to, then we must actively engage and deploy the leadership and teaching giftings of both men and women we have at Grace. And I said that I am exceedingly grateful all across our ministry that you see men and women engaged in teaching and leadership. And that can be true and is true and has to be true while still holding to the biblical conviction that the office of elders to be held by men. And as we saw last week, that just as Adam and Eve were distinct from each other, they were dependent upon one another. And that's a phrase I use all the time, distinct from yet dependent upon one another to be fruitful and multiply in the garden when God gave them the mandate. So too now, men and women are distinct from and dependent upon one another in the local church to carry out the mission to make disciples of all nations to the glory of God. Um, next week, in the passage in the office of deacon, uh, I'll kind of lay my cards on the table ahead of what's coming next week, that we interpret it as Paul calling for qualifications for both men and women in the office of deacon. And then here in verses 1 through 7, in the office of elder, that the practice at grace and the conviction at grace is that Paul is laying out qualifications for men. So, just along those lines, that, uh, where that conviction, part of what it's rooted out of, is that Paul does, is not only making verses 1 through 7 a qualification for men for cultural reasons only, otherwise he wouldn't also include women in the office of deacon that we'll see in the next passage. But this is an example of a theological stance where true believers can disagree while still affirming one another as brother and sister in Christ. Um, but, as many of you know, and the more maybe you're involved or have been involved or read up on the issue of uh, men and women and leadership in the local church, that it can be a very divisive conversation and one that has and does get very heated and personal. And so even at the beginning, we want to lay out, like this passage, what we can all agree on is laying out qualifications for leaders in the local church, particularly the leaders of, in the office of elder. That that is primary, and that is primary that all believers can and should affirm. What is secondary, and I don't mean unimportant, but secondary is whether or not that office is reserved for men or for men and women. And, and we go a lot deeper into this in our membership class, um, but just to try to give a brief overview, while hopefully being helpful and not too brief where it's unhelpful, but there are two kind of camps, you could say, within the Protestant churches that you might be familiar with that are known as complementarian and egalitarian. 
Complementarian means that men and women are equal in value, dignity, and worth and have complementary giftings and distinctions that lead to unity in the church and the mission of God. Egalitarian similarly says men and women are equal in value, in dignity, and worth and are interchangeable in giftings in a way that lead to unity in the church and the mission of God. And there are strong believers in both camps that are doing good work for the glory of God and the mission of the church. And so for this case of clarity, complementarian churches believe the office of elder and pastor is for men. And egalitarian churches believe that the biblical office of elder and pastor is for men and women. And those are modern terms that really just emerged in the last couple generations. Um, And as terms and labels often go, they can become divisive even in the term themselves. In fact, part of me thinks that in five to ten years, we're not even using those terms anymore. Because they've become too divisive, too, um, uh, too strong in some ways. And as a church that in many ways identifies as complementarian, we also want to be pretty quick to affirm that it's possible to be complementarian in name, but patriarchal in practice. Meaning a church culture where women are not only not in the office of elder, but are actually kind of put down, seen as lower, treated as lower, not raised up in their leadership giftings, not given opportunity to deploy those giftings, where women are by and large squelched in a local church. Where then being complementarian is more about power than it is service. And so uh, I, I put it this way, if I were to leave the ministry and my family were to move somewhere else in the country and we would be looking for a church to join and uh, to become members of, it wouldn't be enough for me to hear a church to say they're complementarian. Like, I would need to ask more questions and ask about how women are deployed and seen and utilized in the ministry. How's that seen in the practice of this church? I would want to talk about women, two women in that local church about that culture and how they're seen and valued and gifted and how those uh, giftings are deployed. So that's just a little window into even those terms and kind of identifying and grace the danger of identifying with one camp or the other. Um, And and so I'll say one more thing here, and then we're going to dig into this passage and unpack it. Um, Right now, several of our elders are going through a book that's entitled, interestingly enough, here's the title, Neither Complementarian Nor Egalitarian. And the subtitle is A Kingdom Corrective to the Gender Debate. Um, It's written by a woman named Michelle Lee Barnwall. And what she argues, I think pretty convincingly, is that the conversation has become very Americanized, not biblicized. She said it's become Americanized, not biblicized. And the thesis of the book is that the modern binary debate of man's authority versus women's rights that dominate the complementarian versus egalitarian convo in America does not take into account the kingdom ethics of the New Testament. The kingdom ethics of reversal and unity, inclusion, and love. So I'm going to share one quote, and it's up on the screen there. You can take a look. She says, love, not equality, that's a typo on my end, love, not equality, leads to the true unity that Paul describes when its members may have, same, may have the same care for one another. Equality speaks to one's personal privileges and rights, whereas love describes one's willingness to prioritize others. As we will see, the reversal of hierarchies is prominent way in which the power of God is displayed in the kingdom as well as a vital means to promote unity in the community. So I'll repeat where we currently land at Grace and where we're kind of preaching this passage out of in terms of our conviction of our theology and our practice. Is that if Grace Church is to faithfully carry out the mission in the way God has designed us to, then we must actively engage and deploy the leadership and teaching giftings of both men and women we have at Grace. 
And across our ministry, you will see men and women engaged in teaching and leadership at every level. And that can be true and is true while still holding to the biblical conviction that the office of elders to be held by men. And so our practice, we hope, and we don't claim to be perfect or to have it all together, but our practice stands against the overemphasis of the American version of authority of men and the overemphasis of the American version of equality of women and in its place have a kingdom unity that we see in Scripture. So with that said, Paul's description of elders in Ephesus, we're going to unpack it in the three ways of the elders' aspirations, number one, number two, their qualifications, and then number three, their dedication. So that's our outline for this morning, starting with number one, aspiration. Aspiration. Verse one, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Some of you know this, many of you might not know this, that the Greek word for overseer is interchangeable throughout the New Testament in the Greek for the words elder and pastor. That they are synonymous and interchangeable with one another throughout the New Testament. So to be an elder is to be an overseer. And to be an elder is to be a pastor. So most churches today, including ours, will distinguish between paid and lay roles in the eldership where pastor is is the title given to those in the church that the church uh, supports financially. And then elders are the lay positions, uh, members uh, who are non-staff, serving in the office of elder. So according to the New Testament, pastors are really just um, paid elders. And to put it another way, elders are really lay pastors. Um, Author Jeremy Rin puts it this way, He says, quote, just as volunteer firefighters face the same flames as the paid firefighters, volunteer elders confront the same challenges of shepherding as the staff pastors. So in that way, according to the New Testament, uh, and then the practice in local churches today, staff and lay elders are not divided by calling, but by capacity. And elders together oversee that they provide oversight to the spiritual life of the church, as the shepherds of the church. And it's not a one-man job. So all throughout the New Testament, there is a plurality of elders. It's a really important phrase in the local church, that there ought to be a plurality of elders. That there's no set biblical number of how many elders each church is supposed to have. But here's, here's the thing. It's never one. No matter how small a church, the biblical model for eldership is never just one elder. It's not a one-man show that everyone else falls underneath. It is a plurality of elders. And when Paul says here in verse 1 that he desires, he who aspires to be an elder, desires a noble task, the implication is that this is, again, not the top guy, but he's amongst a group of men in the local church who oversee the church together. And that phrase, another literal translation of that word noble is beautiful. It puts an interesting spin on that verse. It is a beautiful thing for someone to aspire to be an elder because it is an important role in the local church. And it's a beautiful thing to be an elder in a church where God is building his kingdom and the primary means through which he's making disciples to the ends of the earth is through the local church. It's a beautiful thing. But aspiration alone is not sufficient to be an elder. Just because you want to be an elder does not mean you should be an elder. 
In fact, in our fallen natures, we know full well the danger of selfish ambition that we can make look like humble aspiration, don't we? Like, we know when we really want something selfishly, we know how to make it look like a humble aspiration when inside we are fueled by this selfish ambition to gain power. And many men can see the office of elder in the local church as a way to gain power. If I'm in that office, there'll be a sense of control that you could exert. Uh, There's an authority that you could kind of enforce your will on others where it's not healthy authority, but it's authoritarian, which is unhealthy. Which is why Paul is about to follow up this statement. It's a beautiful thing to aspire to be an elder with a list of 15 qualifications rooted in their character that a church needs to see in order to put someone in the office of elder. Okay, so here's maybe one of the most important points of the sermon this morning. Um, This speaks to the vital point in the context of eldership in a way that this is for everyone. That It is for your good to understand this. Every member in a local church. That the body of elders at Grace Church is not the most authoritative governing body in this church. The congregation is. And this is a paradigm shift for many. That our, at Grace, our church government, which again, we hold to be that this church government is most aligned with the biblical one in the New Testament, is that we are congregationally led and congregationally empowered. What does that mean? It means that nobody at Grace Church serves as an elder without the approval of the local congregation. It is our members who together have a system that nominates, assesses, chooses, and then votes in elders to serve. And so an often overlooked wrinkle in the discussion of men and women in the local church is the fact that it is the congregation which consists of both men and women who have the most power in Grace Church, not the elders. So the elders lead, but only if they have been placed by the very people they lead and empowered by those people. And those people can remove those that they have appointed to lead. And so the calling of an elder is not just inward aspiration. It's not just that you want to be one, but it also requires an outward affirmation of the congregation. Uh, William Perkins, he was a pastor during the English Reformation. So we're going back to the late 1500s. William Perkins says this, quote beyond the screen. He says, how can you know for yourself whether God wants you to go into the ministry or not? How do you know if God wants you to be an elder? You must ask both your conscience and the church. Your conscience must judge of your willingness and the church of your ability. In this church, the congregation holds the final say over everything. Uh, Let let me give one example of this. Um, I serve currently as the senior pastor at Grace Church. And I'm a member of both the elders and the staff. And if the membership were to bring concerns about me to the elders this week, by virtue of those concerns, it would generate conversations. It could lead to formal discussions, investigations, um, interviews, and eventually leading to a meeting of the church where the members could vote to remove me from my position as an elder and a pastor here. And if that vote, according to our bylaws, is more than two-thirds of the membership to remove me, even, listen, even if every elder voted to keep me, guess what? I'm out. Cleaning out my office this week. You wouldn't see me next week. Because we are congregationally empowered. 
and they have the final say in putting in and taking um, out of that office. So I have no veto power. The elders have no veto power over the vote of the congregation. And this shows why the qualifications for elder is relevant for all of us. Because it is the members who will appoint elders by these standards. And if needed, it is the members who will remove elders by these standards. And this is just one of the many, one of the many reasons why we emphasize covenant membership here at Grace Church. And why becoming a formal member of Grace directly relates to your discipleship and to others' discipleship and your family's discipleship. It's for your good. It's for the health of the church. And for the impact of the God's kingdom is at stake in the midst of who you vote for elder. So the next class, I don't know, Mary would know better than me when the next membership class is coming up, but I, I just, I would encourage you, if you've been thinking about it, thinking about it, that, uh, to, to encourage you in that direction. All right, aspiration, that's number one. Let's go to number two, qualification. What qualifies someone to be an elder? Well, in unhealthy churches, in unhealthy churches, placing unqualified men into the office of elder is, I think, a major reason why the church at large has struggled in this country. And I'm not one to try to make broad statements, but I do believe with some conviction that unqualified men in the office of elder is one of the primary reasons why the church has and does struggle in this country. Because the three qualifications for elders in an unhealthy church is this. This is qualifications in an unhealthy church. Um, amount of time they've been there, right? Their seniority, their success in the world, and their likability. All right, we like him. He's successful in his job, and he's been here a while. Let's make him an elder. And when those are the qualifications, it's an unhealthy church at best and spiritually dangerous at worst. So Paul's list includes 15 things. And while this list is not exhaustive, it does set a high bar. So as we work through this list, let's be sure to remember that this is not a majority standard. If you get more than half of these, you're good. That's not what it is. In all seriousness, this is what's saying. Um, church, if one of these is not true, then that person is not qualified to be an elder. One is too much. And so we look at this with some seriousness, and I'm going to break them into three categories. So we got sub-outline here of qualifications, three categories. Number one, character. An elder is qualified by the content of their character and not the extent of their charisma. An elder is qualified by the content of their character and not the extent of their charisma. Again, it's a big mistake when churches value charisma higher than character. Character can only be seen in the context of being in and amongst the community over a period of time. So Paul's list is bracketed by reputation as seen by those in the church and then those outside the church. If your Bible's over and look back down, verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach. And then that's bracketed by the end in verse 7, he must be well thought of by outsiders. So this man has a good reputation. He's not a perfect man, but he is a reputable man. Uh, Thabiti Anabwile, he's a pastor down in D.C., he writes in his book, Finding Faithful Elders, that above reproach is this umbrella term that all the other requirements will fall under. So that beginning, that he's above reproach, is now kind of this, again, this umbrella term, not vague, but umbrella term that everything else falls under. And then the aspects of his character then gets fleshed out with these words, sober-minded, self-controlled, 
respectable, gentle. A question, how many of you knew that gentleness is a required qualification to be an elder? Gentleness. And in this way, we see crossover between this list and the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. That, that an elder is not just a good guy in general, or a likable person who we like being around, but a mature believer whose love for Christ is seen and modeled and forged in their lives. And, and, and so if you looked over this list, you, you would probably notice and affirm on some level that this list should be pursued by all believers. Like, this is something that we should all be aspiring for. And so in that sense, the elder serves as a model for the church. And another thing that, we often, that I'm trying to unpack at Grace is that leader is not a synonym for elder. That within a local church, there are various levels of leadership, again, that both men and women hold. But elders should be serving as a model in their character for the church, including those different layers of leadership. Uh, so he, he, here's a good question, a sobering question for those of us who are elders. Uh, that you should ask, if any time an elder gets nominated and you get asked to vote on him, ask this question. What would Grace Church look like if it imitated the character of this elder? What would this church look like if we mirrored and imitated the character of this prospective elder? Healthy churches have healthy elders, first and foremost, in their character. So before now we talk about what they do or giftedness or charisma, the character includes the kind of traits you can feel more than you can see. But that leads to now the second grouping of qualifications, actions. Actions, these are things that are seen. Uh, first there you see hospitable. hospitable. I can never say that word right. Hospitable. In the first century, hospitality was a major mark of Christian maturity. It's all over the New Testament. Again, it's an aim for all believers, but especially leaders in the church. That, that a church that's a welcoming church, not just in terms of friendliness and politeness when you walk in, but there's a church where the culture, culture is of, of, of hospitality. It's, it's seen, it's felt in the midst of this community, and that culture ought to be set by the leadership, that we are hospitable. Even just the fact that we get our word hospital, hospital from hospib, hospitable. I can't say it. I will never be able to say it. But the same root word there, a hospital cares for, it welcomes people in, it's glad to see people, it wants to help, that that's the culture of a church. And the reason why hospitality is talked about so much in the New Testament is because in the early church, uh, as Christians moved throughout the Roman Empire, whether it was for missions or for other reasons, they relied on the churches in each city to open up their homes, right? No hotels in the Roman Empire. Uh, no Airbnb apps in Ephesus. Elders should be the ones modeling hospitality for their church, uh, for outsiders, also within the church. Uh, a phrase we say often amongst our elders is that a good shepherd smells like his sheep. Meaning an elder is in and amongst the members. They're seeking people out in these little conversations each weekend at the gathering. They're serving in more meaningful public ways as well. And outside of the Sunday gathering, they're opening up their home. Uh, I read one commentator say that um, elders ought to be above reproach, not above approach. 
right? Where kind of they're like up here, and you kind of like hear about them, but you never see them, you never interact with them, you don't really know who they are. They're above approach. That's not the qualification. It's above reproach and hospitable. Another action in this list is able to teach. Able to teach. Um, in this context, uh, I think Paul is referring even more so to the organic and formal ways of teaching in the midst of community, more so than the ones who need to be teaching every class or preaching every sermon. But able to teach means they are students of the word. They are able to teach, right? They, they can handle sound doctrine. They know what to do with it. They are active in leading people in the tr- truth of God and able to apply it to your lives. Like they, they don't even know the right answers, but they can see and handle how this truth can be applied to your lives. And those can happen in five-minute conversations. They can happen in, in more formal settings like classes. Um, and then, interestingly, we get a list of actions that are spoken in the negative. Did you notice that? Sometimes when you're describing something, saying what somebody should not be can be more helpful than saying what they should be. So, Paul says, they are not a drunkard. They are not violent, but gentle. They are not quarrelsome. They are not a lover of money. And what this means is that over time, you can see in their lives that they are not living in a way that is so aligned with the world. So are they perfect? No. But are they mature? Yes. Are they willing to repent when they sin? Sins of commission, things of omission. They're doing things they shouldn't. They're not doing things they should. Yes. And then that leads now to number three. The third grouping within qualifications is family. We see throughout this list that he's the husband of one wife, someone who manages his own household well, is a father who dignifies his children and honors them as he leads them. So don't get scared by that word submissive, that his children are submissive, but it's this fact that his children gladly come under his care because he dignifies them and honors them in the way he fathers them. This is a way that the church affirms that how a man treats and serves his family at home is an indicator of how he will treat and serve the church. How a man treats his family at home is a very, very close indicator of how he will lead in the church if you put him in that position. And in God's creative order, from the beginning, we see that the families and the church are foundational institutions for the health of a society as a whole. Uh, if, if you look down, if your Bibles are open to chapter 3, verse 15, you see the thesis of the entire letter of Timothy. He says, this is why I'm writing you. He says it in chapter 3, verse 15. And there he refers to the church as the household of God. Uh, the 17th century pastor, Matthew Henry, uh, wrote a little book called A Church in the House. It's a great title. He calls it A Church in the House. And he says, quote, churches are sacred societies incorporated for the honor and service of God in Christ, devoted to God and employed for him, comma, so should our families be. Every family is a little church. And how a man leads in the home will be a clear indicator of how he will lead in the church. So Paul is not saying here that elders need to be married with children. There are some who believe that. I think that is pretty blatantly wrong. Um, Paul himself, not married. Paul himself, not a father. Timothy, in all likelihood, was a single man. So this is not saying that you need to be married, but it is saying if you are married, you ought to be faithful in adorning to your wife. And if, if a father, 
should prioritize his children and raise them in the truth. That before he models strong faith to his church, there ought to be the fruit from modeling it to his family. And he definitely should not be neglecting his family for the sake of leading in the church. So I, I don't think when Paul talks about the man uh, in this and other letters being the head of a household, that he's thinking about authority. I don't think he's thinking about authority. I don't think he's thinking about power, but he's thinking about service. Is he sacrificially serving his family? Is there evidence of that? Like, what does his wife say about his Christian character in the home? Have you asked her? Would his wife be shocked if the church was considering him for eldership? That's a red flag to me. And any red flags in the father's character in the home are deal breakers in the church when it comes to eldership. So with these groupings of qualifications, character, actions, family, a church is given a framework. This provides us a lens through which members, men and women, should appoint men to serve as elders and then hold them accountable to it and be willing to remove them from it if they are disqualified. And it's vital for any church that's going to carry out its mission, which leads to the final point, dedication. Aspiration, qualifications, and now dedication. We're going to be brief here, but this is vital. Uh, I acknowledge um, to this point, and some sermons feel like this more than others, that this might feel more like a lecture than a sermon. Because we've covered what an elder is, um, who they are, how they should be appointed, what lens through which they should be nominated. And that's all important, but it's not most important. What's most important is the why. Why does God design his church in this way? Why does God desire that each local church be led in part by qualified elders? It all connects back to the mission of the church to be the means through which God makes dry bones live again. Like good elders do not make it about themselves and their leadership. They ensure that a spotlight remains on the power of the gospel that awakens faith and raises up people from the dead. Like that is the work we're involved in. And so we care about qualified elders because we yearn to see revival. We, we care about qualified elders because we want to see the darkness shut out by the light. We want to experience an awakening to the knowledge and the adoration and the worship of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who for our sake was made to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's why this matters. And our churches need men who go to sleep at night filled with the beauty of the gospel, who are willing to pour out their lives so that others may get a glimpse of that beauty too. And so if you look at a church and say, man, that, that, that church has good elders, I hope that when you measure that, it's because you don't really think much about the elders. You think about the thing that they are spotlighting in that church that they are drawing you to, that they are drawing you to the warmth of a hospitable community and the beauty of a gospel that will transform your life. It's a church where people come as they are and not as we expect them to be. It's a church where they come to encounter Jesus, not a list of rules. It's come where they see a loving community where they can see themselves as belonging there. 
where they see a pathway of discipleship, where they can grow in that church, and there's a mission that detaches people from the comforts of this world and inspires them to risk it all and go be part of the story that God is writing for them and for us. And so as we close now, I can tell you that the elders at Grace Church are not perfect men. Um, As Alistair Begg puts it, we're not the best men, Four, we're just men at best. But I can tell you with a clear conscience that we love the Lord. That we cherish his church. And we feel like God is doing something in and through Grace Church. In this moment, in a region of the country where churches are supposed to die. And it might just be that he's up to something here. It might just be that we're seeing dry bones about to catch flame and awaken to the gospel, and we're here for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it not only sets a high bar in many ways, particularly in this way of eldership, but it also very clearly shows the means through which we can attain a high bar. Lord, it is not our works, it is your work. It is not our gifting, but the gifting of your son Jesus, who came and freed us from the bondage of sin, from the bondage of desiring all the glory and needing all the power and trying to use others to prop ourselves up, Lord, that we have been freed from that by the one who came and modeled it for us, for your son came to serve and not be served but also came to empower us through the death on the cross and being raised to new life, that this church can walk in this and our church can thrive in this. And so I pray for and with the elders of Grace Church, both now and those who aspire to be elder next year, five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, that you would humble them, keep them under the shadow of your cross, and yet that you would give them confidence and that they can carry out their calling. I pray for wisdom in the church, for the men and women who are members here, that they would take seriously the call of raising up qualified men and appointing them into this office to lead and lead well. I pray, Lord, that you'd use us all together to carry out this mission, to make disciples to your glory, that we would see that there's nothing greater in the world that we can put our time to, and that you lead us in that. And it's all for the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who is our truly only hope in life and death, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand? as we respond now in song together.